In my outline of Psalm 5, I have simply uh, taken some words from the text to kind of uh, provide that outline. But what I want you to notice in the outline is the first section, the third section, and the fifth section, first, third, and fifth, they focus on God and the psalmist pouring out his request and prayer to God. In sections 2 and 4, there is a description of the evil and a request that God hold them accountable. So the sections alternate. They alternate between looking directly and fully to God and then focusing on the evil person and their relationship to God. And it uh, it goes that way throughout, but beginning, beginning and ending on this note, beginning and ending on this note of God and who He is and His glory. Now... We're going to look at some things after we get the psalm as a whole tonight. Of Some things that the psalm teaches, and I want you to be considering that as we go along. One of the key words of the psalm, it's a very, it's a very short word in Hebrew, two letters, the word key. It is translated generally for, it may be translated in some of your versions, because, but it is used some five times in the Psalms. You see it in verse 2b, and I just mean that for the latter part of the verse, uh, verse 4, verse 9, verse 10b, and verse 12. By the way, if you have looked at commentaries on the book of Psalms, one thing that can be a little confusing sometimes is our English verses are not always lined up with the Hebrew verses. Sometimes the title of the psalm is verse 1 in the psalm. And so like some of your commentaries may have something about Psalm 5 verse 13. They're not really looking at anything that you don't have, but they're just numbering it differently. And I just mentioned that in case that you do, you do run across that. But let's read Psalm 5. Let's get Psalm 5 before us as we see this shift between God's presence and the evil person. The text says, For the choir director, for flute accompaniment, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house 
At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them that those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man. O Lord, you surround him with favor as with a shield. One writer said that he believed that the key passages in the psalm are verse 4 and verse 12 in the sense that they show us the nature of God, one from a negative standpoint in verse 4, as God being a God who does not take pleasure in wickedness. God's holiness is expressed in negative terms that the wicked or the evil cannot dwell with Him. Verse 12 is also a key because it shows us God blesses the righteous. And this psalm is going to make a clear distinction between the wicked on one hand and the righteous on the other hand. The wicked does not enjoy God's favor. The righteous person is blessed by God. But in verses 1 through 3, as much of the psalm, as much of the psalms do, they began with a plea for God to hear prayer. So an important element of biblical prayer is sometimes begging God to hear prayer. We don't think about that much. But this is how it begins. Give ear to my words and consider my groaning. One writer said about this word groaning that these are are silent, are silent desires. Things that we may not or uh, maybe cannot express. So God hears not only our audible words, but God hears our groaning. So the psalmist is begging God to do that. Doesn't the New Testament basically say the same thing in Romans chapter 8, 26 and 27 about groanings too deep for words? Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. Sometimes we take things for granted as far as expressions and ideas. And um, a few years ago, I can remember in a meeting, I used the expression personal relationship with God. And some of the members had read a book and they happened to have me over that night and said some of them had read a book where they said that that was not a biblical expression. And said, what would you say to that? And I said, well... I would agree that those specific words are not found in our Bible. But I said, I would 
disagree in a sense that the idea is found there. What I mean by that is not to deny that we have collective responsibilities. That's not my point. We have a collective responsibility to God. We have a responsibility to other believers as I am sure that you're conscious of uh, being here on this night. But we also have an individual responsibility to God when we are by ourselves. When we are away from this group and away from this crowd. My responsibilities to God are not only collective, they are individual. And God is not only our God and our King, but in the words of verse 2 here, He is my God and my King. And I submit to Him whether I'm around other Christians or not, or at least ideally I must do that. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. Is God your King? Is God your God? And one of the ways to encourage this kind of relationship with God is to pray. And to pray regularly, to pour out our hearts before Him. In verse 3, In the morning, O Lord... You will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Okay? Last time, we talked about different translations and what they have here. Uh, Jen, did you bring your NIV tonight? You were such a star last week by bringing bringing your NIV. Uh, But I think the NIV is worded a lot like the New American Standard here in verse 3. In the morning I will order my prayer and eagerly watch. It's basically the same in the NIV, isn't it? Do you want me to read it? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Who has the ESV with us? Okay, Ryan? Oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Okay, did you catch the difference? In one case, you have God one offering a prayer. In one case, God offering a sacrifice. Now, if you have a new American standard... You have the words, in the morning I order my prayer to you. And the words, my prayer, are in italics. Now, younger people, I want you to know this, and you may have had this drilled in you. But when you find those words, my prayer, in italics there, that indicates there's nothing in the original language that lines up with that, in the New American Standard at least. Does the, does the, the ESV have italics? They do not. And, and the, the, the NASB does, and that's a good point. What basically, whether you have the words, my prayer, as the New American Standard, or a sacrifice as the ESV, Basically, that is an interpretation instead of a translation. The idea in verse 3, in the morning I order or arrange. Now, these particular words can be used for 
uh, someone that wants to arrange words to speak, someone that wants to approach another with particular words. You see this in Psalm 50 and verse 21. It is the word that's used to prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. The same word that's used in verse 3, order or arrange. It can be used for arranging the sacrificial parts of the animal upon the altar. And you see this in the book of Leviticus. Now, often there were morning burnt offerings and peace offerings in Israel. The ESV is taking this as saying in the morning uh, that I'm going to offer my sacrifice and prayer and sacrifice was was intermingled. The, the NSB, NASB, the New American Standard, the NIV, they simply have uh, that he is offering the prayer. But... The point, he is simply arranging his words carefully as he comes into God's presence. Did, did I explain that clearly? I don't know that that's a bold difference, but I just wanted, I don't know if it makes any difference in the long run, but I want you to understand that principle of when you see some translations differ, why that is. That, yes, David? Okay, yeah, what does it say? My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. Okay. In the morning I will direct it to you and look up. Then that doesn't have much uh, transparency. interpretation there. I mean, that seems to be sticking pretty closely to the text, the New King James that David mentions in Psalm 5.3. And thank you for saying that because I realized this afternoon I did not I did not uh, check that. And by the way, the word watch that is used here or look up as David had it translated in the New King James watch or look up that is the word where Habakkuk is waiting for an answer from God. It's also used with Isaiah looking for an answer from God. And so in a sense, he is offering his prayer and he is waiting, looking for God to answer and looking for God to help. Okay. So verses 1 through 3 The writer begins his prayer by begging God to hear his prayer and God to listen to his voice. Acknowledging, and remember this is a psalm of David, but he speaks of God as my king. Even though he is the king of the land, he recognizes there's a greater source to whom he must bow, to whom he must be obedient. And he says in verse 4, You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. Verses 4 through 6, evil cannot come into His presence, is going to stress the holiness of God. Now, you probably take it as a given, as I do, that God is good, that God is Holy. That was not a given in the ancient Near East. 
as the gods were more powerful than men, they lived longer than man, they were eternal, but they were guilty of the same kinds of anger and lust and selfishness that men were guilty of. The gods of the ancient Near East are much different than the God of the Bible. Our God is a God who does not take pleasure. He does not delight in wickedness. Now this word, take pleasure or delight, found in Psalm 5-4, has been used earlier in the Psalms. It was the word used in Psalm 1-2 when the Bible says about the righteous, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. The righteous man delights in God's word, delights in God's law. He takes pleasure in it. He rejoices in it. And our God takes no pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. No evil dwells with you. I want you to help me here. Fill in the blank. Some protected classes in Israel. Widows. Orphans. Poor. Who else? Who? There were disabled that were protected uh, in Leviticus 19. So you're right. And let's keep going. It's not the one I'm looking for. Children. Children are protected. But strangers are aliens. Okay. And these are people who are passing through, who are not necessarily going to dwell with Israel forever, but they are temporary residents. Now, when this word dwell is used here, this word dwell in Psalm chapter 5 verse 4, it is the verb form of that word for a temporary resident. Now, what's the significance? Big deal. What does that mean? What it means is this is not talking about somebody who's going to come into your house and live the rest of his life. This is talking about somebody that's going to stay a night or two and passing through. And yet still... God is such a holy God that He can't tolerate it. That that kind of attitude is not at home in the presence of God. You're not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. No evil. Some of your versions may have. Tell me if they do. Sojourns. Do any of them have the word sojourns there? But that is the idea. Yes, the New King James does. Uh, I've got an old New American Standard that has a footnote. Okay. Sojourns. Okay. The no evil sojourns with you, and the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. The boastful shall not stand. You remember back in Psalm one five, the wicked will not stand 
in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Psalm 1 verse 5. Now here in Psalm 5, 5, the boastful will not stand. Those who are proud, those who are arrogant. In verse 5, and notice how strongly this is said, you hate all who do iniquity. In Psalm 11 verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Now, we try to point out some connections with previous Psalms. The word falsehood that's used in chapter 5, verse 6. The word falsehood, the you destroy those who speak falsehood, was used back in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 4. Uh, about um, fault deception. I believe it's translated deception there in the New American Standard Bible. But the same word. So here, uh, the boastful shall not stand. Now, there are seven different terms. Seven different terms used for the wicked in these verses. Wicked or wickedness. In, in verse in 5, verses 4 through 6. He says, you're not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. He said, no, evil dwells with you. Then he mentions the boastful shall not stand before you. Uh, You hate all who do iniquity. In verse... um, You speak falsehood and they're a man of bloodshed and deceit. So these are ways that the wicked is described. The wicked are described as evil people as wicked people, as evil people, as boastful people, as people who do iniquity, people who speak falsehood, people who are men of bloodshed and deceit. This psalm makes a clear distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And there is a good, there is a clear characterization of the wicked. Um, want us to come back to these verses, Lord willing, at the end. Want us to make a point of this. Okay? Um, one of the... Notice that in verse 7, as we begin a new section, he's talking about how evil can't come into your presence... He says, but as for me. Now, that is a strong contrast. I, I can remember. And I want to tell you, this is a sign of a good sermon. If I can remember a sermon 40 years ago, that's a pretty good sign. Pretty good sign of a good sermon. And I can remember a sermon I heard one night in a meeting 
where I was growing up on Psalm 5, 7, 1, 9. And uh, it, was, it was really powerful, really effective. But um, the more you I study this psalm, things he may have brought out that I may not have been perceptive enough to see at the time. But I don't remember. But when he says, I come into your house, He is drawing a clear contrast between him and the wicked people that have just been described. This is how they live. This is how they are characterized. But I will come into your house. He's determined not to live like that, not to be like that. Not to be a person who is a man of deceit and bloodshed and and speaks falsehood. He doesn't want to be guilty of any of that. But he also recognizes that he cannot come into God's house. He cannot come into God's house by his merit or earning it. He states that He comes into your, but as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. He knows that if He enters the house of God, though He does not seek to give Himself to these sins, He cannot walk in evil and just live in evil and expect His worship to be accepted. He still knows, though, it is a matter of mercy and grace that He is received into the presence of God. Now, again, I want to say this, and and, and I beg all of you, particularly those that are younger, don't, don't zone this out. I'll try to, to state this really, really clearly here. But in verse 7, verse 7, the word loving kindness. And by the way, how is it translated in some of your versions? What, what, what do your versions have for that word? By your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. What do some other versions have? Steadfast love. Steadfast love. Multitude of your mercy. Multitude of your mercy. Okay, a couple of you have that. Have you ever tried to put loving kindness or loving kindnesses into a spell check? It'll, it'll always mark. That's not a word. You know, it's kind of, it's almost like this word has been invented. Um, because there's so much conveyed by this word. The, the Hebrew word that is behind it is, is kesed. And this is the first official time this word has been used in the psalm. It is the first time it's been used. Now, we saw something close to it when we were studying Psalm 4 last week. Because Psalm 4 in verse 3 said, The Lord set apart the godly person for Himself. And that is a form of that word. A godly person is the person that has experienced God's loving kindness. But as one writer said it, I love this statement. He said, if there is any one Hebrew word that describes the character of God, this is it. 
It is very difficult to translate because it rolls into one all of the concepts of God's mercy, God's grace, God's compassion, God's faithfulness, God's loyalty, and God's love. It is hard to translate with one word or with two words because it it gathers all of those concepts together. In Exodus 34, verses 5 and 6, God is a God abounding, overflowing in loving kindness. This particular word. As for me, I will enter your house by your abundant loving kindness. Younger people, older people, if you listen to songs, and this has been true ever since I was a young person, you hear the word love. You could almost substitute the word lust. We have substituted lust for love. This kind of love is not a flare-up of emotion or a romantic attraction. It is a relentless desire to do you good. A relentless desire to do you good, to seek you, to save you, to bless you. It is the kind of love that we are supposed to develop in our lives, between husbands and wives, between brethren and sisters in Christ. It is what we're supposed to develop. And it's the love that God has for us. By your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house and at your holy temple, I will bow in reverence before you. Is the temple a reference to the Jerusalem temple? And by the way, some people say, well, it can't be the Jerusalem temple when he speaks of God's house and God's temple uh, because David wrote it. Sometimes the word temple was applied to the tabernacle. Do you remember that? You see that in 1 Samuel 1 9, that the word temple is used. It's used in 1 Samuel 3 3 in the days of Samuel, even before there was a temple, when there was a tabernacle. But I will enter your house at your holy temple, I will bow in reverence. Is the psalmist bowing before God a contrast? To verse 5, where the boastful stand before him. And he says in verse 8, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. Lead me in your righteousness. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. In Psalm 23, verses 2 and 3, the same word for lead that's used in Psalm 5, 8 is used there. Psalm 23, 2 and 3. O Lord, lead me in Your righteousness. He mentions foes. He mentions enemies. As one writer said, there is scarcely a psalm where there is not some shadow cast by David's enemies. His enemies are present 
And so he begs God. He's not, he's not asking selfishly here. God, lead me in your way. Direct me in your path. In verse 8. Because of my enemies and my foes. There are people that are trying to get me off of the path. There are people that are, are discouraging me from following the right path. Oh Lord, lead me in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. As he describes these wicked people in verses 9 and 10... He said there's nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions thrust them out. For they are rebellious against you. You cannot trust anything these people say. In verses 4 through 6 and verses 9 and 10, as the writer describes the wicked people asking God to hold them guilty, what sin would you say verses 4 through 6 and verses 9 and 10 describe as most characteristic of these wicked people? What what sin? Pride. They are guilty of pride, but I was particularly thinking, this may be the, 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 the root of it, I was thinking of just sins of the tongue. You know, we, we think uh, the old statement, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I don't know if that's still quoted today. That was a great poem from my younger years. Um, a bit more people that have been damaged and hurt by words and by sticks and stones. And it's always been that way. It's always been that way. And you see how many, as this describes the anatomy of the wicked, it talks about in verse 9 what they say. It talks about their throat. It talks about their tongue. They are guilty of James 3 and verses 1 through 12 of setting the world aflame by their tongue. And the text says, by the way, there's a similar description, a good passage to write as a footnote here is Jeremiah 5.16. Jeremiah 5.16 says this um, their quiver is like an open grave all of them are mighty men so it uses the term open grave it has this in common with Psalm chapter uh, 5 and verse 9 it's like their tongue is a big mouth waiting to swallow up all who come by and destroy them A picture, by the way, used also of death in Isaiah 5 and verse 14. But he begs God, hold them guilty and let them fall by their own devices. One of the things that's stressed in the Psalms, particularly in these first Psalms, but, but you see it all through. And all through the Old Testament and New Testament sometimes. 
is that may the plots and plans that they lay for others boomerang on themselves. There's a statement in Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 27 that sums this up. He who digs a pit will fall into it. He who rolls a stone, it will roll back on him. Forgive me for this reference. But when I hear that last part, he who rolls a stone, it will roll back on him. What I think of are the old Roadrunner cartoons as the coyotes pushing that big rock to try to kill somebody else and it comes back on him. Now that might not be the best illustration to use, but the point you get the idea of the passage, Proverbs 27 verse 26. Look Look at what Psalm 7 verses 15 and 16 says. Psalm 7, 15, and 16. He has dug a pit and and hallowed it out. He has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head. His violence will descend upon his own pain. Psalm 7, verses 15 and 16. Look at Psalm 9, verse 15. Uh, The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid, but their own foot has caught them. Then in verse 16, the Lord has made himself known, he's executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. Now this concept of the plots and plans that we lay for others coming back to boomerang on ourselves is the idea of lex talionis. That the, that the, the, the punishment that God gives us is often appropriate to the crime that we commit as a matter of fact, maybe uh, often it is uh, the very plots we're laying for others end up uh, taking us in. Remember who ends up being hanged on the gallows that Haman built? Haman. Pretty good example of that idea of Lex Taliona. Now, another thing in this psalm that I really find exciting. And I didn't mention this before. As soon as I mentioned key words, this word only appears twice. But you see the word in verse 10, or see in verse 10, in the multitude of their transgressions. Multitude. How, how is that translated in different versions? Multitude of their transgressions. Multitude. In the new, is it the, is the New King James that you have, Mary? Two? Okay. So the, the what it was? Abundance. Abundance. Okay, this word multitude, this word abundance, is the same word used in verse 7. Verse 7, it is abundant loving kindness. In verse 10, it is abundant transgressions or multitude of transgressions. The wicked are kicked out of God's house because of their many transgressions. They have deserved being kicked out. But we are allowed entrance into God's house by the abundance, by the multitude of His mercies. Praise God. Verse 11 And notice what changes here. Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Do you notice the change? Before, it's kind of like the psalmist has been alone. Lord is my King and my God. 
For to you I pray. But now he is surrounded by a community that also puts their faith and their hope and their trust in God. Let all who take refuge in you be glad. And the note of joy is going to sound strongly here. Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And then at the end of the verse, may those who love your name exalt in you. And so in this verse, we are told to be glad. We are told to sing for joy. We are told to exalt or rejoice in God. Uh, we, we celebrate in our God who can deliver. You know, we spoke of God earlier as my God and my King in verse 2. And in verse 11, let, one of the responsibilities of a king is to protect his people. We are called to take refuge in him. Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Do you remember how Psalm 2 12? Psalm 2 12? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here, let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them. Those who love your name. I alluded to this verse the other day, love your name. In our sermon, the last sermon I was here, I didn't quote the verse specific. I didn't, I mentioned what was in the verse about loving God's name. This is an antidote to Exodus 20 verse 7. When the Bible says, the Lord will not hold him guiltless. Who takes his name in vain. We love his name. We love his name. And we rejoice in him. And as one writer says. For those who love God. They will have an unending source of rejoicing. An unending source of celebration. But I want you to notice how it talks about God's protection. We said a duty of a king is to protect the people. In verse 11, let all, let them ever sing for joy and may you shelter them. Shelter them. What if your translations have anything different for that word? Shelter in verse 11. You recognize where I was? Oh. What was that? I'm still not getting the word. Defend. Defend. Okay. Defend. Do any of your translations have cover? Spread your protection. Spread your protection. This is a word, and I hope you find this interesting. I hope at least some of you find this interesting who have been in Exodus class. The word is used for like the Ark of the Covenant um, and the covering like the wings of the cherubim are spread out and how it covers the mercy seat in in some of these passages here. 1 Kings 8 is talking about the Ark of the Covenant 
in the days of Solomon as is 1 Chronicles 28. So the point, maybe the spread wings of the angelic beings on top of the Ark of the Covenant are a reminder of the great God they serve who covers, who shelters, who defends, who spreads His protection over His people. Psalm 17, verse 8. Psalm 17, verse 8. Keep me as the apple of the eye, of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your weed. You've heard the stories. I suppose this has happened. Of a fire. Uh, I've taken these as true. The fires that come through. And uh, a man was looking at the damage he did. And he saw a chick that was burned to death and killed. But he lifted up his wings, her wings, and underneath were the chicks safely protected. God shelters us under his wing. And God, in verse 12, surrounds us, surrounds us with His favor. Now, that word is only used one other time in the Old Testament to my knowledge. And that is in 1 Samuel 26, verse 23, verse 26. This is the time, and many of you will remember it, where Saul has broken up his forces into two and they are chasing David around a mountain and they are closing in on David. They are surrounding David and a messenger comes and says, Saul, the Philistines are attacking and he gives up his his, uh, 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 pursuing David and fights with the Philistines. Remember Remember that occasion. But this word is used for how Saul was surrounding David. God surrounds us in that same way. And isn't it fascinating too that in that case when Saul surrounded David, God was ultimately surrounding him more closely because God is apparently for the reason earlier in the text it was said that Saul sought David every day, but the Lord did not deliver him into his hand. 1 Samuel 23 verse 14. The point, the point, God is surrounding and protecting David. God is our armor. You surround him with favor as with a shield. And the text says in verse 12, God blesses the righteous. Now this psalm calls us for a decision, to, to a decision. God does not take pleasure in wickedness and no evil can dwell with Him in verse 4. And then in verse 12, God blesses the righteous. Which side are we going to identify with? Are we going to be among those 
who are evil? Are we going to be among those who are wicked? Who cannot dwell in His presence? Are we going to be among those who are righteous that He blesses? So the psalm calls us for a decision as it makes a stark contrast between the righteous and the wicked and tells us to choose righteousness. But also, look at verse 9 again. There's nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their lips. Do any of you recognize that's quoted in the New Testament? Do you remember where it's quoted in the New Testament? You may have good footnotes or you may, you may remember it. You may recognize it. Where is it quoted? Romans. Yeah. Chapter 3. Yes, very good. Romans 3.13 Romans 3.13 In Romans 3 is Paul making a distinction between the righteous and the wicked as the psalm does? Romans 3 is saying There is none righteous. No, not one. There's none righteous. It's fascinating to me that Paul is taking the words of the Old Testament and by the way, he he pulls together like six or seven references from the Old Testament in, in Romans 3. And he piles together six or seven references and his point is that all have sinned. All have sinned. There is none righteous. And all are in need of His forgiveness. All are in need of His forgiveness. What I'm saying is this. As this psalm distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked, we may have a lot more in common with the wicked than we like to admit. Has it ever been true that we've used our tongue to bring hurt and not healing, destruction? And not salvation. Has our throat ever been an open grave? These words that were written to tell us the kind of person that God would judge. These words that were written to distinguish the kind of person who cannot stand in God's presence. Ultimately, they convict us all. So that we cry, none are righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. The Psalms state that point in Psalm 130 in verses 3 and 4. I love love this passage. Psalm 130 verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? 
But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. If God was to shine a light of His incredible holiness, He is now in this Psalm Psalm 5 shining on the wicked who has mistreated God's servant and mistreated God's people. And certainly His holiness gives us hope that, that, that the wicked will be judged. But when that light is turned upon us, none of us can stand its heat. If you should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is no forgiveness. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. You know what this does? It highlights verse 7. By your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. We deserve because of the multitude of our transgressions in verse 10, we deserve to be thrust out. But we can come into His presence by His abundant loving kindness. His grace in the Old Testament? Yeah. It is on every page. And it's certainly on this page, particularly as you try to tie it in with the rest of the Bible. You all have listened, listened patiently. I am, and, and I sent out notes at about 6.40. I suppose none of you probably got them. But, but I told you something I was going to go over or come back to, which I didn't, but I, but I invite you to look. Look on those notes, and this is the last of them. A contrast I'll make between Psalm 5 and Psalms 15 and 24. Psalm 15 and 24 talk about who can enter into His holy place, who can stand in His holy hill. And it uses a lot of the same vocabulary. For example, Psalm 15.1 says, Who may dwell on your holy hill. The word dwell in 15.1 is the same word used in fifteen verse in chapter 5, verse 4. No evil dwells with you, 5.4, and who may dwell on your holy hill, 15.1. Psalm 15 expresses positively the kind of person who can dwell in God's house. Psalm 24 does this. Psalm 5 expresses negatively the kind of person who cannot dwell in God's house. Okay. So, um, those are some thoughts... Brad is going to lead us in a song in just a moment, but I've decided we'll go ahead and have uh, our prayer first. But let me tell y'all something that and I have learned something too through this experience. Last Tuesday night, I walked to the back. Told you I was going to be away for a meeting, and um, Mark and Debbie said, "Where are you going?" And I said, "I'm going to Lubbock, Texas." And they said. Well, I have an uncle and cousins there. And, uh, and I said, well, if you give me their name, I'll try to call them and invite them. And her cousin came Thursday night and came back Friday night and came back Saturday night. So, 
I have decided this. Lord willing, if, if continue to be spared. When I go somewhere, I'm going to try to make a point. If you know somebody there that you think will be open to the gospel, call. I'll call. I'll try to invite them. And I'm also going to make a point. I've made this, and I did not do this in Texas, so I can still communicate this to those brethren. If you know somebody here that we can talk to, if you know somebody here that we can say, hey, I was out here and I met your cousin, met your friend, they said to give you a call. Then we're going to try to do that. Because that's a way that we can try to reach out to spread the boundaries of God's people. But we'll have Mark lead us in prayer and then we'll have Brad lead us in singing Psalm 5. Heavenly Father, we're thankful to you for your loving kindness. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the presentation this evening. We're thankful for all the good things that you bring to our lives, and especially our Savior, Jesus. We ask that you will forgive us and help us to live closer to you. We pray for those who are sick and all those that need your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you.